Um, Alan's going to come up and uh, bring us the Bible reading now from Judges chapter 19. And again, it is, uh, is pretty heavy, so yeah, please uh, yeah, make sure your kids are out of earshot and uh, read along to be on the screen. Come on up, Alan. Reading from Judges chapter 19. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking, and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, "'Refresh yourself for something to eat, then you can go.' So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the woman's father said, please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddle donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, Let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let us try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going and where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took them into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, 
Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the man would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Well, uh, thanks for reading that, Alan, and thanks for listening. It's, uh, it's pretty hard. Uh, well, just a reminder that, as usual, we will have a Q&A straight after, or we'll have a little reflection time and then a Q&A. Um, so if you've got questions that come up uh, from these passages uh, today, please, yeah, text them in and we'll, we'll do our best to have a, have a go at answering those. Um, but this is, this is one of those passages uh, that some people point to when they're arguing that the Bible is outdated uh, and actually does more harm than good. I'll say, well, why would you have a book like this? Why would you have a record like this? It's outdated. This is from a past era, from a past time. It, 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 it's no good. Get rid of it. And, and this passage is appalling, isn't it? It's sickening. It's t terrible to read, to listen to. Yeah. Did you notice the, the good guy in the story, the old man from Ephraim who took them in? The good guy wants to protect his guests by offering his daughter and the concubine uh, to be raped all night. And the Levite, who is meant to be this holy man, he ends up pushing his concubine out the door to this mob to save himself. He then gets a good night's sleep while she endures the most unimaginably horrendous ordeal, dying with her hands on the threshold. Why is this here? And why is this story here? Why, why record something like this? Why give this event the dignity of being written down? Well, well it is here, and it's actually here on purpose. Uh, this, chronologically, isn't the last event in Judges. I don't know if you realise that. It's been working through Judges. Judges isn't chronological. Uh, we actually only have one person named in this whole three passages, 19 to 21, a one long story. Uh, the only person who is named in these passages is Phineas, uh, and you might remember Phineas, he was actually around during the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Uh, he was the young man who stopped the immorality that was going on by spearing someone through the back while they were in the midst of it. And that stopped the curse that God had put on the people. This young uh, priest 
uh, who, who before they came into the land. So this is pretty early on uh, into the sort of 315, 14 years of the judges. Uh, this is maybe 40 years in. So this is early on. So it's not the final event of judges chronologically, which means that God through the human order author has put it here on purpose. It's been intentionally placed here at the end of the book. God wants us to end on this picture. Why? Is it just here to remember what life used to be like, like a memorial of a past culture that, you know, like a never, let's never forget this. Never let our culture return to this. Uh, it could be that. Well, at first it could be that, but it, it's not, is it? Because appallingly, we have the same problem today. Uh, just in March this last year, it hit the news again uh, that Derek Barrett, a fellow from Sydney, uh, he received an extra sentence on top of the 35 years he was already serving uh, for murdering his niece, Mega Mei Leng. He got the extra sentence because a USB was discovered that uh, showed him he'd filmed uh, her rape and torture before her murder. And so they, they tacked some more. And that, that just came out this year uh, in March. Uh, and these aren't just one-off events. Yesterday, if yesterday was a statistically average day, there were 21 sexual assaults in New South Wales. And that's only the reported ones. There'll be 20 more today, 21 tomorrow, 22 the day after, if this month is an average month. And if, you're, if my experience is, is common to the rest of us, uh, this is just too much to think about regularly, isn't it? It's just too much. It's, it's too horrific. It's too traumatic to go and read these stories, anything like regularly, uh, to watch these reports, to look at these statistics. And so we try not to think about it. We avert our eyes. It's just too painful to think about on any kind of a regular basis. But the fact of the Bible is that God doesn't avert his eyes. God won't pretend that the world's all sunshine and butterflies. That's what we like to do is, you know, just, okay, let's, let's just not look at those reports. And while we might try and avoid it, passages like today's don't try and dodge, minimise or sanitise the horror that does exist in this world. Because realistically, the events of this passage are statistically happening right now somewhere, probably many places. See, the faith of the Bible, it's not a fair-weather faith that only works or is only for good people on nice days. It's not a faith like that. Because if that's all the faith of the Bible is, it's not enough to, to help us in this world, is it? If, if, the, if the God of the Bible can only help us on good days with nice people, that, that's not enough. Any faith that doesn't offer answers to a world like the world we just heard described isn't much use. So what can be done about horrors like this? Can the God of the Bible actually help in a world as messy and mucked up as this? Does the Bible say anything that can? Well, that's where we're heading today. Uh, and first, we're not going to avert our eyes, but we're going to continue to look at these chapters, chapters 19 to 21, We'll have a look at them. Again, three chapters, we're not going to go into detail, but we, will, we won't dodge this. Uh, and then we're going to see uh, that we need more than human solutions. Human solutions aren't enough. We need more uh, to deal with this world. And we'll wrap up uh, by saying, well, what, what is it that we need in King Jesus? What do we need in a king to give answers for a world like this? But first, please join me. Let's pray. 
Our Father God, uh, we come to you uh, pretty emotional, pretty horrified, uh, almost struck dumb as we consider the reality of this world uh, and the horrendous sin and suffering that is happening uh, right at this moment. And so, Father, we, we pray that, uh, well, first and foremost, you will bring uh, comfort and hope to those who are suffering, even right now, uh, that they might find comfort and hope in Jesus, even in the midst of such a horrendous world. And we pray for us as we uh, open your words, we seek to hear from you. Lord, Lord, help us to feel the weight of this. But in all its horror, we pray that you will you will speak to us and we will hear you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we do look at the final chapters of this book, chapter, the last three chapters, after that appalling Bible reading, the bad news is it doesn't get any better. You'd think after a chapter like that, okay, well, that's that out of the way. Well, it doesn't get any better. We're not even finished seeing the depravity of this passage yet. As we read into 20 and 21, uh, now, but before we get into chapter 20, a couple of things that I wanted to just point out from the Bible reading from chapter 19. Uh, first, uh, Judges 19 has incredible parallels with Genesis 19, uh, which is the story of Sodom. Uh, another one of these uh, stories that's got into con- of common knowledge. We've most probably heard of Sodom. Um, and Sodom was this, this ancient city that was the epitome of pagan immorality, of people who didn't know God, didn't care, and were just horrendously immoral. Uh, in fact, in Genesis 19, which is where we read about Sodom, and Judges 19, a full quarter of the words are identical. So if, if as that reading was happening, if you went, wow, I think I've heard this before, uh, you're right, you have heard a full quarter of the words are identical. Uh, I'll just read a little passage from Genesis 19. It's on the screen there from verse 4. Um, some visitors came to Lot's house. Uh, these two visitors, they're actually angels in disguise, but before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where, is the, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them what, what you like with them. Uh, But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. You know, it's it's horrendous. Even here and again, you think, oh, how can how can they offer? Don't do this wicked thing, this vile thing. Here's some, here's my daughters. Here's these innocent young women. Here's the concubine. Just do with them what you like. Don't do that wicked thing. Do this instead. It's the same phrasing, isn't it? It's straight out of Judges. And there's an emphasis going on here. That is what happened in Judges, but there's an emphasis going on where we're meant to see this parallel. Uh, And we're meant to see it, especially in the way that uh, the Levite, as he's on his way uh, past Jerusalem or Jabus, and the servant, remember, says, hey, let's stop here for the night. And the Levite says, well, here's what he says. It's on the screen, verse 12. No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. Uh, so that's meant to highlight for us, no, no, I'm not going into a pagan city, a foreign city with no Israelites in it. Ugh, that would, wouldn't that be a terrible place to go? We're going to my people, to our people, to Israelites. The big lesson here is that Israel has become Sodom. Sodom was horrendous, but it was the pagans. They didn't have God or his law. This is Gibeah. These are Israelites of the tribe of Benjamin. 
explicitly. We were told that a few times. These aren't pagans who don't know about God, who don't know his laws, who don't know what he's like. Israel has become worse than the other nations. We're meant to be thinking, gee, it would have been better if they'd gone to Jerusalem, wouldn't it? It would have been better if they'd gone to a pagan city who didn't know God than that they ended up here in Gibeah. Uh, as it is, uh, it, it, he, they do go to Gibeah and the Levite heads home with his dead concubine on the mule. He cuts her already mutilated body into 12 pieces and sends them out to each tribe. And he's wanting to display uh, what's been done to her to get the attentions of the tribes. And it did. It really got Israel's attention. Uh, all of Israel responds, all the other tribes, and they send out a fighting delegation uh, from each tribe and they gather together 400,000 fighting men. That's a lot of people. 400,000 fighting men gather, n not only against the city of Gibeah, but against the whole tribe of Benjamin because the tribe actually sided with the people of Gibeah. Israel first sent messages to Benjamin saying, hand over those wicked men who did this. And Benjamin said, no, we won't hand them over, which says... We condone this. Benjamin sided with the men of Gibeah who did this to the concubine rather than handing them over for justice. Um, so up they come, 400,000 fighting men of Israel up against um, just under 27,000 uh, crack troops from Benjamin. It's emphasised how good warriors they are. <clears throat> so they come to the city of Gibeah, day one of the battle. Uh, Judah goes up first uh, to, to attack Benjamin and Benjamin have the day. They win. Uh, they kill 22,000 Israelites. So they go back, lick their wounds, uh, go back again. Day two, same again. 18,000 uh, Israelites die. Uh, they go back. Oh, should we keep going? They ask the Lord. Yeah, the Lord says, yes, go back. I, wa I want this done. You will win the day. Uh, day three, they have a fake attack. and they, Well, they attack and then they retreat or pretend to retreat. And Benjamin run out of the city after them, thinking, great, we've won the day again. Uh, and they, they slaughter them. Uh, only 600 of all the men of Benjamin escape. But that's not where the killing ends. Because the army, having, having slaughtered everyone but 600 of these warriors, turned to the villages and the cities of Benjamin, where there's no men. When men all went to war, and they slaughter everyone. Uh, it says women, children, even the animals. And they burn the villages and the cities. This, this whole district, not, not a living thing. Uh, and then they pronounce this judgment, this kind of oath in the midst of their, I guess, their battle rage. Um, <clears throat> the warriors say to each other, uh, the men of Israel had taken the oath that Mizpah, none of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite, which is a death sentence on the nation, isn't it? There's 600 men left. They're saying, you, you will all grow old and die. No one, no one will give you a wife. And you'll go into your old age knowing that one by one, Benjamin is dying. Uh, but they, they realise then somehow, oh no, that will mean we won't be 12 tribes anymore. Isn't that terrible? So they come up where they sort of have a what have we done moment. We've wiped out a tribe. What have we done? Um, so they come up with a solution because they've all sworn this oath. Oh, we won't, we won't give our daughters to Benjamin. Um, uh, they come up with a solution. They ask, well, look, let's, let's work out where we can get wives to the Benjaminites. Was there any city who wasn't represented when we came up to gather our warriors? Uh, you know, Morissette sent their contingent, Sydney sent their contingent, you know. Oh, Newcastle, there wasn't anyone from Newcastle. That's what they, they did. Was there any city 
who weren't represented when we came to bring justice on Benjamin. Yep, uh, there's one, Jabesh Gilead. And so they think, wait, two, two birds with one stone because we want to punish Jabesh to Gilead for not coming and helping. But we also need wives for Benjamin. So this, remember, this is the elders of Israel. This is the leaders of the nation. Uh, I'll read from 21 verse 10. It's on the screen. So the assembly uh, sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and to put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you're to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who'd never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Now, what's going on here? They, they, they've brought these ladies back, these, I say ladies, they're girls, they're virgins, so they're probably in their mid-teens if they're not married by that age. Uh, they bring them back to Shiloh. Uh, as wives of these Benjamite hideaways, these 600 Benjamite soldiers who survived. And, and don't picture speed dating where they're trying to get to know each other and working out who's a good match. Uh, more likely it was some kind of cage or corral with 400 weeping teenage girls. And they've just seen their, their families slaughtered, their younger siblings killed, the aunts, uncles, grandparents, the whole city dead. And they've been dragged away and one by one, they're dragged out and given to one of these Benjamite men. What a solution. But they're still 200 short. There's still 200 Benjamite men without a, without a wife. So well, the leaders think, well, here's another solution. Have a look, verse 19. Uh, but look, there's an annual festival of the Lord at Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethlehem to Shechem, south of Leborah. Le- nah. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. And when the young woman of Shiloh come out to join the dancing, rush from the vineyards, each of you, and seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers and brothers complain to us, we'll say to them, do us the favour of helping them because we did not get their wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking your oath because you did not give your daughters to them. So that's what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt their towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and their clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's the solution from the elders of Israel. This this is the general assembly. This is the parliament, all the elders together together. That's the solution. State-sponsored kidnap, rape and lifelong forced marriage of 200 more girls from Israelite families. Shiloh, it's it's not a foreign area. These are Israelite families, explicitly. That's their solution. And that's where the book of Judges leaves us. That's where it ends, with those words. Well, that's, that's the horrors of chapter 19 to 21. We can't dodge it. Uh, And next, as we move on, I think it becomes pretty clear that we need more than just a human solution. Because here, the solution, you know, when the the Levite sends out the the body parts, there's a gruesome uh, delivery of the concubine, and all Israelites rally, 400,000 men rally. It kind of feels like the cavalry's coming at that point in the story, doesn't it? You think, great, the cavalry's here, we're going to win this. They're going to clean up this mess. And and there is a clean-up, isn't there? 
There, there is a somewhat justice brought on the tribe of Benjamin, but the solution's really no solution at all, is it? Uh, we'll teach Benjamin a lesson for that horrendous act against that concubine, and they end up uh, state-sponsored kidnap, rape, and lifelong marriage, forced marriage of 600 teenage girls. That's their solution. That's the human solution to this, this problem. We need, we need better solutions than this. Even when the nation of Israel do get a decent king, because that's where it lends, isn't it? The author saying, we need a king. Israel had no king. This happened because we didn't have a strong king. Even when they did get a decent king, probably King David would be one of the better ones, wouldn't he? Uh, who does bring peace and reform to the nation. Do you remember what King David did with Bathsheba? He's, he's on his roof. He's the king. He's powerful. He's won all his battles. And he looks down and he sees a woman bathing. He says, bring her to me. I want her. Uh, and they, they have sex. We're not told if it's rape or not. But is there any way to say no to a king? Is, is there any way for her to say, no, I don't want this? That's what King David does. And then he goes on and murders her husband because she's pregnant now. And, and he's got no way to cover up, so he sends him to the front lines with a letter carrying the, his own death warrant. Put this man, Uriah the Hittite, put him in the front lines where the fighting is fiercest. I want him dead. That's King David. So he, he cleans up some messes in Israel, but he creates other messes. How do you think Bathsheba's family felt about all that? Or her? How'd she go on the rest of her life married to this man who murdered her husband? who just had his way with it because he wanted it. What about Uriah's family? He kind of saw all this roll out. He cleaned up some messes, but he made plenty of others. And it's the same today, isn't it? It's in every society, every culture, every single group of people. Uh, some have better laws. Some have harsher consequences. Some have more police. And all those things can help to a point. But no government, king or party gets it all right. No government, king or party is going to fix this problem. I would go so far as to say that every government, while fixing some problems, makes it worse for some other group. Every government. doesn't matter whether you're left, right or in the middle. Every government might fix some problems but makes it worse for other. Whether it's the poor, the refugees or the, un the unborn or some other group of people. They might fix it for one group, but they'll make it worse for another. There's no point holding out for a better system, a better government, or a better king. We need more than human solutions. Now, do you remember we started this passage uh, remembering that it was placed here on purpose? It's not the last thing to happen in Judges. It's the last words. Uh, it's one of the earliest <coughs> actually, <coughs> events that we find in Judges. Um, that tells us something about the way Judges is put together, about the message of Judges. And Judges has been teaching us this same message for the last 10 weeks. <clears throat> it's been building and building, saying repeatedly, we need a better saviour. That's what the word judge means, saviour. We need a better saviour. We need a better king. Because even the best of the Judges, the, the best they get is 40 years of peace before it deteriorates again. Uh, none of the judges could truly save the people. They kept running back to their other lives, cycle after cycle. Judges is teaching us that we, we as humans, we don't just need another chance. 
We don't need another chance to say, oh, well, we'll do better than our parents. We'll do better than the previous generation. We'll do better than they did. That, that's, what, that's what us humans say to each other. You know, we say, yeah, we'll, we'll do better. I can't believe that generation did that. We'll do better. And judges, teachers, is you won't do better. How many cycles do you need to see we won't do better? We might do better in some areas, but we'll do far worse in others. We won't do better. That's, that's what it's been teaching us. We don't need a better leader. We don't need a better society. We don't need a more evolved culture. And just as we've just seen, even just with David, the rest of the Old Testament carries on that same theme. We need more than a human saviour. We need, we need a Messiah. That's the promise of the Old Testament. God saving king. All these stories leave you longing for the Messiah, God himself, to come and save, which does bring us to Jesus. You won't be surprised about that. See, we've seen again and again through this book that these chapters really hammer it home. And that final verse, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. We need a king. We need a perfect God king who can save us even from our own hearts. And that's what this chapter really highlights. I want us to see now that what we need in King Jesus, because we do need a faith, we need a saviour who can help us, not just when life's rosy. Uh, A faith that only helps good people on nice days, that's not enough. We need a faith, a saviour who helps us in the real horror and atrocities of this world. And the first thing this chapter shouts out that we need in King Jesus is wrath. It's judgment. It's justice. You know, you can't read these chapters without thinking, we need justice. We need a king who brings justice. Uh, In Acts 17, Paul is preaching uh, in Athens, and here's what he says. Uh, Paul, uh, Acts 17, 31, for he set a day, that is God who set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's saying God set a day when he will judge the world with justice. That's Jesus. Jesus will judge the world with justice. See, a lot of people have a problem with God's wrath, with God's righteous anger on sin. and say, well, why can't God just forgive? Why, why, does, why does he need wrath? Why does there need to be a judgment? Well, if you've got a problem with, <clears throat> with God's wrath, with Jesus' just judgment, I've got to say, you're just shutting your eyes to the horror of this world. You're very, very carefully selecting which news articles to read if you've got a problem with God's wrath. You're skipping over the chapters 19 to 21 in Judges if you've got a problem with God's wrath. Because in a world like this world, the real world, where these kind of atrocities happen literally all the time, We need a God, a king, who takes justice seriously, who doesn't just ignore it, who doesn't sweep it under the rug, but who takes it seriously. But then we've got to ask, where does it stop? Where does does that judgment stop? You might think, okay, well, all all the gang rapists, yeah, that's right, they they should be destroyed. Well, what about the rapists? What uh, What about just anyone who's ever given someone else any unwanted sexual attention. That's pretty broad, isn't it? We're losing a whole chunk of our population at this point. Or when it comes to murderers, you think, okay, murderers, get rid of them. What about accessories to murder, people who helped? 
Well, what about bullies who bullied people so, so terribly that they committed suicide? And if we're talking about bullying, well, what about just anyone who has ever said something demeaning or hurtful to somebody else? Because that's bullying, isn't it? What about we who close our eyes, who ignore or minimise what's going on? Who say, you know, that, that atrocity, it's, I just can't think about it. I just can't look at it, so I'll just look the other way. I'll just get on with my life. Surely a culture like that destroy, deserves to be destroyed. Now, where, where does it stop for King Jesus to make a perfect world where there's none of this? He's got to cut out all the selfishness. He's got to get all the hurt and wrongdoing gone. Do we make the cut? Do, we, do any of us get included if you've got to cut out all the wrong? So that's where forgiveness comes in because we need more than just justice. We need forgiveness because we, we don't make the cut if we get justice. That's the second thing we need in King Jesus. In 1 John 1, John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, thinking personally, I think oh, that's a relief. That's great. That's great for me. And a few weeks ago, Alan was, uh, Alan was preaching to us and uh, he told a story at the end about a, a guy he'd met in prison just a couple of weeks earlier, called him Frank, uh, a guy who was in prison for murder. And he was in there for 18, 19 years. And he just found Jesus, he just found forgiveness. And then he, I also went, oh, that's great. And then you start to think, well, what about the victim's family? How are they feeling about this, that this guy's found forgiveness? That he's been cleansed, that he's got no guilt anymore. What, 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 how are they feeling? I actually found an article on the Gospel Coalition website this week called Sharing, he- Sharing Heaven with Serial Killers. You could put, and rapists. Because that's the reality. Jesus' forgiveness, the forgiveness that's offered in the Bible, there's, there's no cutoff point that says, oh, okay, liars are welcome, but murderers aren't. There's no cutoff point for that. It's open to all. See, we need a king who's both just and comes in forgiveness. But how can you have both? How can you offer forgiveness to murderers and rapists, to people like us who've hurt others terribly in different ways? How can you offer forgiveness to them and still be just and still take justice seriously? Well, that's why Jesus' death on the cross was absolutely essential. In Romans 3, we're going to be looking at this in just a few weeks in our Roman series. Uh, Paul writes this about the cross. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see that? The cross is there. Jesus died so that God could be just, so that he could come in justice and judgment and wrath and rightfully bring justice to all the oppressed, to all those who are hurt, to all the victims. That is right. God needs to be just. But also the justifier. So it wouldn't be right for God just to forgive people with no consequences. And we know that if if we've been hurt and that other person got forgiven, or those we love have been hurt and that other person just got off the hook, 
No, that's not right. That's not, that's not justice. How can God be just and the one who declares people righteous? That's what the, the one who justifies, who says, I will treat you as though you had never sinned. Frank, in prison, getting released, I will look at you and treat you, Frank, as though you had never sinned, as though you have Jesus' perfect record. How can you be just and forgive? Well, it's because Jesus on the cross actually took that punishment. He took that justice. He took what the tribe of Benjamin deserved, what the men of Gibeah deserve, what, what those in our modern culture deserve who, who murder and kidnap and rape, who took what we deserve when we treat God like dirt, when we take all the good things he gives us and ignore him, when we treat others terribly. He took all that and, and paid it all. So justice was done. And only then can he offer forgiveness to those who find refuge in that justice. It's the death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross makes that possible. And it's incredible. It's incredible. We've got a God who is just. We've got a God who also forgives and manages to forgive while still being just and righteous and good. But we actually need more than that. That's great, but we need more. Uh, because even forgiven, even with justice paid, we're just going to do it again, aren't we? <laughs> you take a bunch of people who've been forgiven for sinning and leave them, how long until they muck up again? You know yourself, I know me. We won't last very long, so we need more. We actually need transformation. And this is all over the Bible. There's, there's promises about God promising to transform his people in Ezekiel. There's assurances in Galatians and Romans. And then there's this statement. Uh, this is the one I chose to go to today, 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, and, and we all, that is those who have come to faith in Jesus, who found forgiveness in Jesus, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this is not saying you become a Christian and then you transform yourself. No, we can't do that. We're not good enough. Certainly not saying you've got to fix yourself up before you come to Jesus. Because if you're waiting to improve yourself enough to come to Jesus, you're never going to get there. Come now. That's what, that's what the cross is about. But having come, having found forgiveness, having found shelter in the justice that God poured out on Jesus on the cross. It begins a transformation. The new heart that's promised in Ezekiel, the work begun that will be completed, that Paul's assures us of in Galatians. And here, the, the transformation that's done to us, not, not by us, explicitly, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This isn't something that's dependent on you or me to transform ourselves. We can't do that. See, the message of Judges is the same as the message from these three horrendous chapters. <clears throat> we need a saving king. Not just out there where atrocities happen, but in here, where we have hearts that again and again just want to return to selfishness and rebellion. We need a saving king. <clears throat> we don't need another chance to do better next time. We won't. We don't need a better leader. We don't need a more evolved society. We need King Jesus, a true saviour, not just to show us how to be better, but who judges and forgives 
and transforms his people. He is our only hope. And he's the world's only hope. He's the only one worth living for. It's the only message worth taking to anyone. This is the hope. Now, we're going to spend a few minutes now reflecting in song together. Uh, It's a new song uh, called All I Have Is Christ. Uh, And in in one of the choruses, um, they'll sing. We'll have to just listen on and internalize and meditate on these words. Uh, Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Do you believe that? Because that's that's the crux of what it means to come to Jesus in repentance and faith, saying, I don't have the strength to follow your commands. I don't have the strength to be a good person, to deserve my way into your family. I need you. I need your justice. I desperately need your forgiveness. And, And in a really crucial way, I need your transforming power. Let's reflect on that now. I'm uh, so grateful that we've got uh, gifted people out there who can put words like that to great music. Um, Yeah, thanks for sitting through that reading and and sermon. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Um, I'm sure there's some questions come up. If uh, any of your questions you don't feel comfortable to ask right now, uh, you can text us uh, through the week and we'd we'd love to hear them. But uh, why don't we kick off? Uh, I think Rob's got a couple that have come in already. No, I thought I saw one come in earlier. Well, any in the room? Any, any questions particularly? Alan, I'll repeat it. Is there any relevance to the, the, the man staying over in his father-in-law's house for five days? Yeah, so the question is, is there any relevance to the man staying in his father-in-law's house for a number of days? Uh, not that I could see particularly. Uh, I don't think that's lessons for not getting tied up with your in-laws or anything. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, well, for me, when I was reading it, it felt like we're starting with kind of a conflicted but nice story because you've got a Levite with a concubine. You're like, well, that's wrong. Levites should, it's very restricted. Levites were allowed to get married, but they were restricted on who they could marry. So you definitely not have to have a concubine. But actually, C is quite tender-hearted. He, he, he goes to her after she's been unfaithful to him and, and patches things up. He speaks to her tenderly. And so, you know, reading the first part of the passage with the, the, and this overwhelming generosity, hospitality of the father-in-law, I think that's, that's meant to be doing something too, to say, oh, this is what real hospitality looks like. And I'm kind of feeling warm and fuzzy, like, wow, they're patching their relationship up, but also feeling, oh, he shouldn't even be in this relationship. But it's, and then the amazing hospitality they get from her father-in-law, that acts as a bit of a contrast, I think, to the horrendous hospitality. They get a Gibeah. So I'd say that that's, that's the parallels, but nothing, nothing more than that. Mm. Yep, and Rob's got one. All right, we've got one come through. Oh, hang on. We've got one come through. Uh, the question is, if there is no visible sign of any change or transformation in the person's life, does this mean they haven't truly repented mm. and been forgiven? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, and I would answer with a resounding yes, it does mean they have not repented or been forgiven. The book of James makes this really, really clear. 
Uh, it's, and, and again, to be clear, uh, it's not our actions which save us. So it's not the fact that we've, we've repented and start doing good and therefore, oh, tick, you're now a good person, not a bad person. No, no, that doesn't save you. But, but especially in James and, and through the other epistles, it's really clear that repentance or inner repentance without an external action is not really repentance. You can say what you like about what you believe, uh, about who your Lord is, but if there's no, no sign of repentance, um, that, that, that person, and maybe that person's you, isn't actually, hasn't actually come to faith in Jesus. Now, no repentance is very different to a bit of repentance. So um, it, it's complicated when it gets down that bottom end. It doesn't mean that you've got to be perfect by any shot before you can have assurance of salvation or before you look in someone else's life and think, yeah, I think they are following Jesus. None of us get us right. Uh, King David, after all, he, he does repent even after that horrendous act. Um, but he, he didn't get things right. Um, but no repentance, no change, no sign, no matter what they say, if they're not living the life, there's not real life faith. George. Yes, uh, story. Yeah, yeah, thanks, George. So I think you're just reminding us that uh, in a lot of these cases, uh, I'm assuming just in relation to that last comment um, of people who don't have visible repentance, we, we actually do need to trust that God, who sees all, seen and unseen, will give a true and just judgment at Jesus' return. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, James still does call us to give very severe warnings to people. Uh, I think the whole, the whole New Testament does. So we, we are called to judge, but not in the same way. Uh, uh, we'll see in Romans, we're, not called to, we're called not to judge in a critical way that says you're terrible and I'm not. But we are called to be discerning, which is the same word as judge, uh, and to look at others, yeah. Yeah, great, great reminder, George, that uh, yeah, we always need to be, what they say, when you're pointing at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back just to say, oh, before I start looking at other people, you know, as Jesus said, pull the, pull the log out of your own eye. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, George. And Richard? Yeah, thanks for that, Richard. So your question, I said Jesus died for every, everyone. His, his atonement on the cross paid for all sins, past, present, future, the time of the cross, including the sins of Benjamin. But, as you rightly said, uh, that forgiveness is only effective. That, that covering of that sin only works for those who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 ends with those startling words, uh, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in your way. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So that, 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 that covering, that forgiveness is only, only for those who do repent and come in faith to Jesus. Uh, it's not a blanket forgiveness on anyone regardless. Yeah, yeah, thanks Richard. Did you have a follow up? Yep. That's all right, you can get that later, it happens. Okay, we, oh, here it is. Oh, that wasn't long, good. Mm. Okay, so the, the crux of the question is, uh, how can a loving God hate? Because God can't act against what he is. Uh, uh, should we have another word for hate? I don't think so. Uh, I, I think our culture has defined hate a particular way. So if we're thinking of God's hate as in unwarranted hate, uh, like the kind of irrational hatred against a race, I think would be the most common way we'd see it in our culture, that there's no reason to hate. Uh, whereas God's, God's wrath, his anger, his judgment, uh, his 
detesting is actually against worthy things that are worthy of all those things. And, so, and because God is omnipotent, he, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he knows everything, uh, he judges justly and correctly in every situation, he never treats something inappropriately. So he never looks at something and overreacts, overhates, or looks at something and underreacts, oh, it's not that serious. He always responds with the exact right amount of emotion and punishment or reward. And that's, that is, I think George was kind of getting at that before, that's a great assurance for me and encouragement that it's ultimately, and there's no way I can ever get all this right, even just looking at my own life. We have a God who, who sees things seen and unseen. Uh, he knows the secrets of our hearts. And, and if he hates something, if he detests something, if he pours out his wrath on something, he does it to exactly the right amount, at exactly the right time, in the right way, and we know that it is always completely just. So I, I take assurance in that, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and because of what happened on the cross, he can he can hate and forgive because he that the sin is covered, and that's the remarkable thing of what happened at the cross. That uh, on the cross, he who had no sin became sin for us. Uh, God looked at Jesus, and and the Father looked at Jesus and saw uh, sinners, those who deserved His wrath, hundred percent, and because. Therefore, we, we now get his righteousness in that exchange if we're found in him. He now can look at us, still hating that sin, but that sin's been dealt with. That was paid for, that was atoned at the, on the cross, and now he can look at us and see not only a freedom from sin, but all the credits from Jesus' life and, and see his perfect, obedient, loving, truly good son as he looks at us, which is, yeah, just incredible. Yeah, George. Yeah, why was the father-in-law so insistent that you need to keep staying? Uh, similar to Alan's question, I think it's to contrast what good hospitality looks like compared to terrible hospitality in Gibeah. Yeah. We might wrap it up there um, for this week.